Welcome to Black Kings Connect podcast, where we connect, empower, and uplift by providing a space to talk about the Black experience. We cultivate down-to-earth, honest, and real conversations to shatter the myth that Blackness is monolithic. Through this space, we hope that you learn something new, find truth to your voice, and especially have conversations with friends, family, and colleagues alike as we dive into some great dialogue. In season one of Black Kings Connect podcast, we begin this journey by talking through different topics that run through the minds of those who identify as Black. We attempt to unravel the complexities of our own experiences with the help of several individuals in our circles. With that being said, welcome to season one of Black Kings Connect podcast, the mindset of Blackness. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Black Kings Connect podcast. Today is a very special episode. We are talking about the shift. And what I mean by the shift, we're talking about when we go from being a child to an adult, there's something that changes in our mindset. And we wonder, does that happen faster within Black men, within Black women? And really, what causes that? And today, we have our special guests, Mr. Ed Scott and Mr. William Prophet. Thank you guys for coming uh, to join me and James in this great conversation, this dialogue, where we can just talk shop about this topic and unpack the complexities. So let me introduce you guys real quick. Ed, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Edward Scott. Uh, I'm currently a full-time graduate student at UVA. Um, and uh, I, I like all things uh, Black Boy Joy. Um, and I'm a foodie. Fun fact, fun fact about me. <laughs> awesome. William? Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is William Prophet. I'm currently a doctoral candidate uh, in special ed in the Department of Special Education at the University of Kansas. Uh, right now, I'm currently dissertating, and my research centers on the improving the schooling experiences and the lived realities of Black boys with disabilities, labeled with disabilities. Awesome. Well, welcome, guys. And of course, everybody, y'all know me and James, um, sure. you know, uh, but we definitely want to bring in, you know, some of our some some really good friends of ours that have this. this, this I'm sorry, this discussion. Woo, tongue twister. Um, <laughs> but with that being said, I definitely want to pose a question just to get things rolling, because I'm all about just diving in uh, when we're talking about complexities of identity. So, fellas, what what is your story? You know, what was it like for you growing up as, especially as black men? Because I mean, this is a whole panel of black men, which is, you rarely see that in this kind of conversation. I'll let Ed start. <laughs> I need some starters. <laughs> yeah. That's so, a, you know, I was, that's such a loaded question. Like, what was, it, what was it like growing up? And, you know, the first, the first thing I think about in terms of like my upbringing was, you know, very much being raised in a somewhat single parent home, right? Uh, that's like the first thing I think about in the way that I, in the way that like my mind has shaped what it means to be a man, right? Like that, the adolescence, especially given the topic, it was, you know, always thinking about my siblings, trying to take care of things my mom didn't necessarily have to, trying to find that bond between myself and my dad who was there, but not really there, but he was, but he wasn't. So like trying to understand that as way as well. So like my, my frame of reference when I think about like growing up, it was having to step up pretty quickly, right? So having to step up pretty quickly at, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, you know, helping out around the house, 
having that job early on, you know, bagging groceries or playing for the church so I could have a little money so I didn't have to ask my mom for something, knowing that it was spread thin, you know, sometimes, especially when you get a little bit closer to Christmas and birthdays, you know, you start, you know, you saw things start to, you know, the, the pocketbook start to tighten up a little bit. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, having, I think having that was a gift and a curse. So I'm become super independent now, right? So like, was always super independent, always was able to, you know, solve problems, figure out how to make connections in the right way. But at the same time, I feel like there was no chance for me to just be a little black boy. That's not to say I didn't enjoy, you know, cartoons on Saturday mornings or like running with my friends or whatever, but I feel like there was always that like pressure to say, I gotta put maybe this on the back burner. Like I have to focus on these other things, right? So it was, it was like kind of a very rushed, accelerated process of kind of growing into a man, right? So understanding I have responsibilities. So yeah, I can go play, you know, my friends, I can go watch these cartoons, but I gotta get in the book so I can get the scholarship because I know I gotta go to college in order to better myself. Or, and I could be doing all these other things, but man, I gotta go get these dishes. Or I gotta make sure, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting this job at the right time. You know, I'm, you know, so I don't get fired or anything because I know that there's money that needs to be in the household, you know? So I think it was like a gift and a curse. And my story, I don't think is unique at all. I know there's several black boys that had that rush and accelerated process, especially, you know, growing up in an interesting place like Charlottesville, where I looked around, I was the only black boy or kid Mostly, I mean, in high school and also, you know, in like elementary school when I moved here to Charlottesville. So then I had this understanding, like, what does it mean to actually be black? Like, not just a kid, but what does it mean to be a little black boy in a mostly white area? How do I even come to rectify and understand, like, my, my blackness and my identity? We can go into, like, black identity development and all that. We're not, I'm going to pass the mic. But that was pretty much my experience. It's super rushed. Like, I, I felt rushed the entire mm -hmm. time. Um, That's deep. Yeah, I feel rushed the entire time. But now I still am a big ass kid. Um, so trying to relive some of those, trying to relive some of those memories now. But yeah, that was my experience. That was definitely my experience. That's what's up. Ed, what about you guys? So um, I think I'll, well, sorry, Ed, do you want to go? No, nah, you go ahead. Okay. So one, I'll start out. So um, I was born and I'll say born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. So my formative years, let's say zero to 12, I was living in New York before I moved to Virginia. I also want to establish that my parents come from very, from two different backgrounds, right? My mother is African-American. Uh, her family are, you know, she and her family members are descendants from uh, American slavery. And my dad is a, an immigrant from Guyana. For those who don't know, for those who are listening, Guyana is a country in South America that speaks English, they don't speak Spanish or anything else, and they're culturally, they associate with the Caribbean, right? So I was, I was raised by my black mother, African-American mother, and my black Afro-Guyanese father. Now, I spent most of my time, I lived with my mother, but my dad was still very much involved in my life and in my, my upbringing. Uh, so that's that. Um, in terms of my I guess let's, let's talk about my social class. Like my social class, I was, how, how would you describe it? Like work, not below working class, maybe like below working class, but you know, we never really felt, at least my family, we never really felt, at least the children, we never felt like, oh, we were worried. We had to worry about food being on the table or um, access to the things that we needed educationally or uh, socially, emotionally. Um, my, my mom especially had that, had that covered. 
Um, and also she was receiving support from my dad as well. Um, educationally, this is really, this has been really part of my, my formative years. Uh, I attended an, an Afrocentric uh, elementary school. So, you know, I learned about um, Rosa Parks and Langston Hughes before I learned about uh, Emily Dickerson, Dickinson and Shakespeare, right? So I didn't really get, I didn't really get exposed to that until I, I moved to Virginia. Um, we literally sang the Black National Anthem. That was our national anthem <laughs> before I knew, uh, was it Oh Say You Can See, whatever the name of that song is. Um, <laughs> the, real, the real national anthem. Um, so all of that has been has shaped my own upbringing. My, my parents were always very much involved politically, making sure that voting was a huge part. They would, they would take me to go voting. So that, that shaped me politically, the importance of, of voting. Talking about people like David Dinkins in my household was very important. Also, my mom always had me involved in the after school program as well. So from, you know, once I started school, I was in the after school program until I left Virginia, which also shaped my experience. And I was in, you know, mixing with a variety of different people from different backgrounds, obviously Dominicans and Puerto Ricans, because they're, that's a huge part, a huge population in, in, in the New York City area, um, as well as interacting with people from who were identified as Muslim, uh, who identified with other religions and that, that after the school program, that daycare, that's what I call it, that daycare, uh, they, they valued that difference and in, 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 in getting us all involved in, in that difference and us understanding each other. So that was, I would say, as a part of my formative years and what I would call my childhood, uh, at least within the New York context. So that's what's up. What about you, Ed? Yeah, I was trying to think the whole time about okay, how are you going to answer this question? Because um, uh, I'm a Virginia native. That's where I'll start. I'm born in Newport News. Um, but uh, the reason why it's all, I'm always anxious about the question of where are you from is because um, early years, I bounced back and forth between um, the cities of Petersburg and Hopewell. But my mom was a soldier. So very quickly, mm -hmm. I started being from everywhere. A little bit of Georgia, a little bit of the Midwest, you know, all these different places. Um, and so I think that, that that's, that's critical to mention just because that shapes a lot of, um, uh, that informs how I understand like relationships, right? Um, and, and the potential longevity of those and the kind of work that has to be put into developing supportive relationships. And um, you'll notice that I said my mom was a soldier and that's how I bounced around um, because I was raised in a, in a, in a, in a, a single parent household. You know, I, I, the, when James earlier was saying, you know, my dad was there, but, uh, you know, it, it kind of kind of complicated, I guess, you know, um, the similar situation that bouncing around um, caused a strained um, relationship in the sense that we were a little a little distant, um, both geographically and relationally. Um, and we can, you know, jump into more of that later if y'all want. But um, I'd say I, I grew up uh, being the smart, nerdy, super, super engaged kid. Um, and it's, it's, there's a tension there though, because I'm the oldest. So, you know, when, when, um, folks are talking about, you know, uh, having to take on additional responsibilities and getting jobs and things like that, um, that's a part of the narrative. Um, I'm, 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 I, I, I often, uh, I, I think this, this question, when we talk about the transition from, uh, adolescence or, or childhood childhood different stages but adolescence to adulthood you know it's um 
it becomes complicated, right? Because it's not stable. There's no magic to the number 18. Um, uh, there's a lot, a lot of adult, adult-ish, we'll say, responsibilities that, that are introduced earlier based off of life circumstances. I know for me, that was the case. Um, and so, uh, I don't know. Um, everything that I've been doing has been about, you know, trying to be of service to people. My mom, like I said, was a soldier. She worked four jobs growing up, up until her military career took off. Um, so I, I got learned from her what hard work looked like and um, what uh, taking care of yourself looked like. I mentioned earlier that I was a foodie because that also connects to my first job, that connects to my current hobbies, that connects to also how I show love to people. Um, so uh, yeah, that's 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 kind of kind of the, the way the story goes. Oh man, you know that a lot of what you said resonated with me because you know. So for me, I grew up as a military kid as well. Um, you know, and especially I grew up in DC, um, Bowling Air Force Base. Um, but I grew up with both my parents in the household. Um, my older sister, she's technically my half sister because she lived with her dad. Mm. Um, so I would see her maybe every other, every couple of weeks or things like that. Today we're like best friends, um, you know, more than anything. We've continued to grow our relationship as siblings. Um, but I would say like a word that popped in my mind as I, as I was listening and as I was thinking about my own story it was fragmented mm-hmm. because I lived in a household where I had both my parents present in, 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 my, in my journey and my growing up. But being a military kid, my dad would have to go overseas for a certain extended period of time, especially in my adolescence. Um, so I remember when my dad left for Korea for like a year and a half, he gave me a huge manual. <laughs> I think I was like eight years old. And he said, These, this is how you do everything. This is how you do the lawnmower, the, the, how you work the you know, washing machine. You know, this is, you know, where you find X, Y, Z. And I, and I stepped up into that role. And I assumed, because I was, I'm the oldest male in my family. I'm the middle child, but the oldest male. And so I assumed, looking at how my dad interacted with me in that accord, I assumed that role as, okay, I am here to make sure I can alleviate as much stress for my mom as possible. So my mom was also working 60, 70 hours a week, working in construction as a Black female. Um, so we would, me and my brother would be sitting in school. We'd be the last people to be picked up. You know, um, the, the teachers would be looking at their watches like, okay, when's she going to get here kind of thing. That's so right. we'd be the first people there because we had to get up early so my mom could get to work on time and not be late and not lose her job. You know, so I was used to the 4 a.m. wake-ups with the 7 p.m. pickups. And so it always felt like we were fragmented in a way because also my parents' marriage was unstable. And that definitely had a, an impact on me, had an impact on my brother, and especially with my sister living with her dad, that also had an impact on her. So um, when I look at it, every single one of your stories, I, I, I can feel, and I guess for me, I always found ways to dive into my hobbies, my passions. Food was another connecting for me, um, is, is where I, it allowed me to understand myself and also find a place of, of peace in the midst of the fragmentation that was happening. Uh, Cause I was also going, I went to a predominantly black private Christian school in Alexandria, Virginia, 14 people in my class. Then from there went to a predominantly white upper affluent private Christian school. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when I say upper affluent there, were, I have friends whose, whose parents would like drop millions of dollars just to build our, our football field, our oh, basketball wow. gym, things like that. I was on scholarship the whole way. Um, and the only reason I got to that school is because my principal, who was a black lady I thank her to this day, she opened the door because of the connection, a networking opportunity. She didn't want me to fall through the cracks. I was a, I was a nerdy, smart black kid, top of my class. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I, I, you know, those kind of connections really helped me along the way, but still cooking was my, was my piece because definitely going to that school and going from a predominantly black atmosphere where I learned about, you know, black history all the time. I mean, like, not just like serve food that's atypical Southern that people connect with black people, but like we learned, like everybody had to do a project about black, you know, and black history, about different people in black history, not just Rosa Parks, not just MLK, but James Farmer, you know, brother who, who led the freedom rides, things like that. So yeah, it was definitely, a, I would say the word that resonated with me the most was fragmented, but the piece came from the things I was able to do to help mitigate that experience per se. Yeah, it's interesting. You also mentioned a Christian school. I actually, I was raised Catholic, uh, which, which had a mediating impact on my experience then coming to UVA, which we may talk about later, uh, just in terms of the black Christian community from the, from the South versus uh, growing up Catholic in, in the North, that's a, a different experience. You know, and, and, I, and I also wonder, cause I mean, as you mentioned that too, it's like faith has always been, I guess, tied to the black experience in some kind of way. Whether it's you were a kid growing up, you go to grandma's house and she makes you get by the crock of dawn to go to church uh, or sing in the choir or perform in the band, whatever it may be, but how faith is intermingled in that development stage. Because uh, I, I literally remember I would, I would go, when I'm at home with my parents, we wouldn't go to church. Go to grandma's house in Kentucky, six in the morning, well, you better get up, let's go. And, and I would spend summers there and she would put me in the choir and everything. So it's like, when I go home, I'm like, oh, I'm not doing this when I go to my grandparents. It's like, okay, now I'm diving into my faith. But now to, the, to this very day, the experience with my grandparents has actually helped me mm. in my own faith journey to where it's become foundational to how I perform my blackness. Interesting. Hmm. That is interesting. Was, so Will, you said you were raised Catholic. I, yeah. was raised in a, I was raised in extreme, I'm in a very Baptist church. Um, you know, Nikki made a good point about having to be in church all the time. That was my mom. I was singing in choir, like when I could start talking. Um, so been in choir ever since, you know, been in the church. And I, I do agree. I think that's one, how I kind of understood Blackness, right? That Black church experience, I think formed a lot of my identity, but also got me connected to other Black men that I still now mm-hmm. to this day look up to. Um, so, you know, Will, to your, your point, you know, I live with my mom, my dad was around, um, you know, fragmented to use your word, uh, but that's where I kind of found those black male role models. I didn't have a lot in the school because there were a lot of black male educators around me. I think I maybe had one black teacher my entire K-12 experience, and that was like a history teacher in the, I don't know, 11th grade, something like that. So it wasn't in class. Um, so family mm-hmm. members, of course, but like in that church, I think it's where I found those experiences. But it also, and I'm curious because we can talk about faith. I think this idea of what it means to be a black man, what it means to be a black man in the church, all that great stuff in the community. I had positive experiences there, but also some negative. So I'm wondering, like, did you all feel like a, uh, did you, in what way do you think the church helped to formulate your experience your idea of what it means to be a black male for the good or for the bad if that question makes sense i think for me it showed me so when we talk about black masculinity we often hear of the 
the hypermasculine perspective, the imagery of, of hypermasculinity. And I think for me, it gave me more of the femininity sides, the, 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 the soft traits like, you know, empathy, uh, what it means to give mercy, uh, what it means to understand another person and what they're going through. And I think for me, it allowed me to resonate with more people, even people that are outside the black community in a, in a, in a different way. Even as I look at all the events that are happening around blackness, around black bodies, it's still, I have this lens of empathy of how can I serve to help educate people who don't identify like me, but to help them understand what it's like to have been in, you know, in a, in a role as a black person, as a black body in, in the U.S. and in today's time, even in present, you know, in previous times. And so I think just being in the church environment, it, it did more than just show me black role, you know, black role models. But mostly I saw more black women engaged in the church atmosphere than I saw black mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that allowed me to assume and better understand more of the emotional stability that I needed as I continue to grow into my masculinity as a black man, um, which it's like, it, it, I think it's so crucial to have the emotional stability and just be aware of where our emotions are coming from, but to be okay with you're hurt, it's okay to cry, but work through what is causing that pain and work through that um, and those kind of conversations. And even have a conversation with like nephews, uh, you know, and, and things like that. So I definitely think the church had a big impact in that accord in regards to my emotional, my emotional intelligence. I think that's the word I'm really trying to go for, the emotional intelligence that I needed to continue to cultivate a healthy um, black, black male identity. I would say for me, the the church, like, so I didn't go to a black church, right? So I didn't, I, I didn't go to that. I went to a, a Catholic church that had a lot of black Catholics, many of them who are West Indian things, but it wasn't, it wasn't, from my experience, the church wasn't about relationship building. In fact, sometimes we used to skip mass. So my brother and I used to skip mass uh, and then my dad would pick us up. So while my dad wasn't, he didn't live with, live with, my, live with us, my parents were divorced. He was the one who got us involved in the Catholic church. Uh, we would go to Sunday school and then occasionally go to mass. Now, what I would say the church did for me was from an intellectual standpoint. Uh, so if we think about identity in relation to being a black man, I didn't necessarily think of myself as a black man attending uh, church and, and, and working through these identities in particular in these particular ways, but think of myself as this person who's attending uh, Sunday school and working mm-hmm. through the text of the Bible. So uh, just learning how to critically engage with text uh, was what I think I learned the most from attending uh, Catholic church. Uh, I, I w- that's what I would say. And learning how to, I guess also learning how to communicate with, with people who do, uh, who, who have faith backgrounds, who, who come from particular faiths and realizing, oh, what is, what are the things that people gravitate toward uh, what are the things that people find meaningful to them in terms of their faith and how do I build on that and how do I connect to people in that regard, um, but not anything sort of about my own masculine identity or anything like that. Hmm. That's deep. The... Hmm. I think the question is really... Uh... <laughs> I'm trying to decide which direction to go in here um, because I kind of, my, my, my inclination is to step back from the, the, 
the masculine feminine separation, right? Because I feel like I feel like for me in many ways, and and, and the way that I think about um, masculinity and femininity is that they all, they always move together, and it's 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 kind of how they show up and how they're displayed that that changes from person to person in the church space. Um, provide provided me with an opportunity to to show up in different ways. Um, uh, particularly growing up as uh, a black queer boy, um, it provided a certain level of, um, I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word, but it seems the, to be the most accurate in the moment, like the, a certain level of cover, right? So I, I remember singing in the choir, right? And what, what that kind of freedom of expression and um, a certain level of, of, of flamboyance right but not in not not in in the way that we people commonly throw around the word but i'm talking about like bigness like large free expressiveness um in, in, in the church created space for that um while also um while also being a space of constant fear and a need to cover um and 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 constantly um being braced for impact, so to speak, because you don't know what words are gonna come from the pulpit. Um, and, but also being in love with um, the space to include the pulpit, right? So there's always this tension that I, um, I had to navigate. I love, um, I, I grew up, grew up in the church, like thank the Lord for my grandmother. Like I grew up, you know, learning early how to pray, um, you know, uh, the, the, the basic, childhood song, you know, yes, Jesus loves me, you know, and those <laughs> types of things, they, 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 they register with me. Um, as I began to grow older, um, though, from, you know, the children's church to, you know, participating in the youth ministry, um, you know, in my adolescence and my teenage years and um, started to begin to explore identities and ask more questions and really more critically engage and understand like what's happening in this space. Um, I felt myself moving away from the church as a means of safety, but still trying to somehow hold on to, to faith, right? And so um, that was an interaction between, you know, the, my, all of my identities kind of working together and, and trying to understand, you know, what this space means to me and how I can navigate this space in a way that is um, both healthy um, and authentic and uh, um, well-grounded in, in the teachings um, uh, as I, as I, as I, as I, not necessarily as I, res as I, as they were delivered to me by people, but as they were understood to me by my experience with the divine, right? So, um, I think that that's, that's kind of, that's the, the tension I'm trying to grab here because what the church taught me is how complex it is to grow up, uh, uh, being a black boy with all of these other identities working at the same time. Um, and it provided but one context for me to, to, to begin to kind of stretch out and, 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 and test out different ways of, of showing up. Mm, that's deep because, you know, you, you, you guys have been talking about, especially when you talk about the space of the church, I think that the concept of environment and space, it, it makes a difference in what gets cultivated say between the school the classroom and what's in that environment and what's in that space between you talk about athletics I know for me I grew up as an athlete I played football I played basketball soccer you you, you say any sport I played it I did it and I did it all throughout you know elementary school middle school high school 
And I remember the biggest thing for me is I'm all about the arts. So when it comes to singing, when it comes to musicals, when it comes to theater, I love it. And I remember I had a, I, I, you know, I, I love to use the Troy Bolton, you know, uh, Zeke kind of, you know, analogy from those movies because Zeke was a black boy who loved to cook. Then Troy is also, he's, he's, a, he's a man who, who loves to do theater. And, and, and those are spaces which are considered or deemed as feminine. And I remember when I was playing football, that's when I was doing auditions for the theater. But, you know, you don't really see men uh, participate, um, especially black men participate in those arenas. Because, again, the school I was going to was predominantly white, upper affluent. And when I think about my identity, especially in that space, the moment I entered into that space is when I recognized the conflict of, of my identity constantly. Uh, because not only was I a minority in a school where there was a majority, and I always had it felt, I always felt the tension of being black in a space to where I'm the minority, but I also had a, I also was starting to feel the tension of performing my masculinity in spaces which are deemed as feminine. And I remember, you know, having, I, didn't, I, never, I never told my coaches I was auditioning for the musical, which was Susical, loved it, got a lead role in it and everything, had a whole lot of support from friends. Um, but I remember having, trying to have the conversation with my dad. My dad never did anything like that, you know? And I, I remember telling my dad, I didn't tell my dad I was in a play in a musical until the day before the opening night, because I was so afraid about how would he react? Oh no, is, you know, is my son, cause I'm straight. But I wondered if my dad would question my masculinity. If, if, I, if I had mentioned that, I would wonder if my friends would, would question that too. And it was always at this conflict for myself of just, I'm expressing the things that I find valuable to me in the arts and especially in cooking. I mean, I love me, to, I love to bake. I mean, I can bake anything. You ask me to bake something, I'll make it. Um, but it even took a while to even get comfortable and you know, in that and just being authentically myself. And so I wonder, you know, as you continue to dive into the concept of environment, what environments gave you the most tension to your identity as you, you know, especially as you went from just being a child, but maybe into your teenage years, going into college. Every space came with attention. That I'll jump out there. Uh, yeah, and, uh, like even even thinking about so even for example, looking at this conversation, right? Um, and you know, I celebrate and appreciate you know uh, Brother Bland for for inviting me to the talk. Um, and I I heard the words, you know, we're trying to go move with a with a shop talk kind of feel. And I understand what that means and the register that that has um, and how he intended it. And um, my experience, particularly as a black queer boy, I got to go back to that, and you know, now black queer men in, in barbershops is such that when I heard shop talk, I had to navigate attention, right? Because mm -hmm. I know, because my framing of what a barbershop talk sounds like and how those dialogues um, reflect me in the way that um, uh, masculinity is navigated in those spaces, isn't mm -hmm. always the most comfortable, right? So yeah. there's a lot of um, trauma in those barbershop trauma developed in barbershops. Actually, I I can even um share um to, to that that I think man oh man share a story. I've never shared this story before. So y'all y'all are getting hot off the press. Exclusive. But um you know, <laughs> oh, man, I feel I, I feel I feel man, I got the front row. 
Go ahead, no drop. <laughs> no, because it, it really, uh, in terms of it, along the lines of barbershops, and it wasn't a traumatic experience, but it was it was a, a definitely a, a experience that prompted me to to have to look at myself in juxtaposition to my peers. Um, mm. Basically, I'm a seven year old a seven year old boy um, in Georgia. That's where we were stationed at the time, and and I, I go into this barbershop, this un, unnamed barbershop. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting in this barbershop and, you know, going to the chair, sit down, get my cut. Um, and while I'm getting my cut, these, uh, these women walk in the barbershop and um, prompt the, the front chair to, to lock the door. And because um, I know, I know, I know, I know you're going to have some listeners. So what I'll say is that a performance ensued. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. A performance ensued in this barbershop in seventh, seventh grade me is sitting there in this space. Um, and of course, you know, what the, the barber like low key turns my chair around, but it's a big old mirror on the other side of the chair. So I can see all the dynamics that's happening between this dancer and, you know, these other grown men. Um, and what I can say is in that space, my my reaction to the, to the moment was not the same as theirs, right? And so, but my, my, my concern wasn't that my reaction to the moment was not the same as theirs, as much as them detecting that my reaction to the moment was mm. not the same as theirs. And so, um, performer leaves, they open the shop back up, um, and, you know, Barbara looks at me and says, now what happens in the barbershop stays in the barbershop. So I'm, I'm having to, to keep this, this narrative um, or this experience to myself. Um, but no, it makes it, it that I, I go back, I think, to that moment because what it, it, it highlighted for me is how that space, there's a lot of assumptions that are made about all the people that show up in that space and um, the way that that we're to engage one another, right? So I had, I had to, I had to, I had to react in a particular way, um, and I, and I, I, I wonder. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm sitting here, and this is this experience is actually very, very reflective for me because I'm, I'm now wondering, like, how does that push me to think about um, the way that I also show up and cover in other spaces, or, or how I learned to show up and cover in other spaces, and what. Um, in a very literal sense, black black boyhood at that time looked like. Um, so yeah, mm. that word "cover" is resonating. It, it's it's literally like rippling so much because it, it's you talk about the concept of double consciousness. It's, it's that awareness of okay, you see me as different, but then I have to function differently in that same kind of way. But we talk about when you talk about that word "cover." It's, it's, it's like a, a subconscious reaction to the environment that we enter into, a defense mechanism mm -hmm. to protect the authenticity of who we are, to protect what we find most valuable to us as we walk into that space. So that concept of cover is so powerful, as you stated that, because it's like, you've, once you feel like your cover is gone, you feel so vulnerable and you feel so unstable in your identity that you need to re-enter to a space that allows you to re-stabilize in, in a kind of way um, because that perception of, 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 out of the outside experience 
And this is not just talking about from our white peers. This is also in the black community at the same time of when we talk about blackness as it's not monolithic, it's multiplicitous. I mean, there's multiple factors that go into the identity of black identity. You know, so to treat and say one size fits all for how to approach somebody who's black and who's understanding their identity, that's a hard thing to say that one size fits all. It really doesn't because everybody's experience is very different. There's multiple factors you have to understand that make up their foundation as they walk through. So that concept of cover is like a sacred word of how do we, con- how do we cultivate that cover? How do we contemplate that cover? How do we communicate that cover? Because from the cover, there may also be, I, I think about like for me, it's like insecurities that I didn't realize that I had in my own blackness, in my performance of blackness that I've had to constantly work through but also insecurities in my identity of my masculinity mm-hmm. that I've had to work through. And a lot of it came from how do I come off to other people and how do people perceive me? How do I, how do I, how do I feel received? Because for me growing up, I was bullied as a kid. Mm-hmm. I was a fat kid. I weighed 200 pounds in my third grade. I love to eat. I can't help it. But, you know, I never felt like I had the space to just be me without being judged by other people, by other peers. And so there was always that constant instability and instability, instability and instability, and constantly looking at how can I restabilize my cover for my identity. I appreciate you highlighting the word cover and I flip it on its head because for me, I'm thinking, how can I contribute to building a world where the cover isn't needed, right? Ooh. Where I can Go show ahead. up 100% myself in any and every space and not have to worry about my safety, not have to worry mm-hmm. about um, any consequential judgment, because there's always judgment there, but I'm talking about judgment that, that, that leads to damage and to harm um, and to self-doubt, right? Like that's, that's what I want is like, that, like that's, a, that's a part of the freedom vision that I'm, I cast. Mm. Mm. Y'all are talking good stuff too, because I'm thinking about what cover also, amen to that. How do we, how do we completely you know, make a space where that's not even necessary? Like that's, that's my dream, especially for like little black kids. Yeah, like growing up because you know all, all of what you're you're saying is resonated with me. This idea of having to perform, it's like me again, is having to show up in certain spaces, but knowing that if I don't perform in this super hyper masculine way, even though I just want to chill, but if I don't perform in this hyper masculine way, talk about all the women I'm trying to get or all these, you know, what I'm saying the sports I'm trying to play, then I'll be seen as less masculine less you know uh i I won't be affirmed or like accepted by this group of peers that i have here so i mean that i know that was me in high school like being like okay i gotta be on the basketball team i gotta be on the track team i was still very much a virgin i'm still out here talking about yeah i'm trying to get in you know with the homeboys so they wouldn't look at me in a specific type of way Mm -hmm. like i remember one story and again i haven't shared this either uh, so another kind of exclusive, but it really, it always stayed with me because I, this, I had this moment, even at 17, I was like, something about what we're doing here doesn't make any sense. There was like a young lady, we were all in a group somewhere. I probably had no business being, we were all in this group and a young lady was propositioning me, we'll say that. And I was like, no, I'm good. Like I was again, raised in the church. At that time I said, you know, I'm going to wait until I'm married. Mm-hmm. That, you know, raised in the church, that's what we were taught. And my homie, he comes over to me. One of my homeboys, he was like, man, you're not going to? I was like, nah, man, I'm good. You know, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm all right. I'm going to chill. He was like, what? Yo, hold on. Are you gay? But he, he said it in a way not to, like, really ask me, like, hey, is it? 
I want to support you if you are, but very much being like, if you don't go here and do this right, this, do this thing right now, I'm a question like your masculinity. I'm a question, mm-hmm. you know, if you even belong to this group right now, I'm a question if like you are like you're the way that you're performing in this space is not adequate when I think about my standard, like what I'm bringing to it. So at that point, I felt like super insecure. It felt almost pressured to go and do this thing with this young lady, even though I didn't want to. I had no idea who she really was. Like, just so I can get the attention or the approval of these other young men that I'm sure performing in ways that they were taught to. Like, we were all taught these things, of course. So it's, again, to your point, it, I would love to find ways that we can have our little black boys and you know little black girls grow up in spaces where they don't feel pressured to have to perform in certain type of ways and just to be. Like, and I think that's that's a powerful and a very liberating space. And I don't know, I want to get to that eventually, but curious of like, what does that even look like? Like, what does that even look like? How do we break that down? But um, yeah, that's a, well, I want to I want to definitely want to circle back to that at some point. So I want to add, uh, interesting going back to barbershops. My first barber was a woman. <laughs> she was a more, you know, a more masculine woman uh, in terms of her performance. Her name was Dorel, but that was the first barber I ever had. And I don't know if my mom took me to her because she was a woman. I should ask her. Uh, or if uh, she was the, the only one who had a seat available. <laughs> As a, maybe, you know, maybe other people didn't want to go to Dorel um, because she was a woman or whatnot. I don't know. But she was my barber for years. Um, and she did a damn good job. Like she's doing a good job on my, on my cut. And I used to get, I used to get uh, fades all the time up to maybe I was like 15, 16. I used to always get like a low fade. So she was doing, and obviously she had to be somewhat skilled, right. To, to be hired within that barbershop um, where, where people viewed her as, as, as competent and, and skilled. Um, but, you know, I never really thought about that, how much that mediated my understanding of, who barbers can be and who women can be um, and my own identity about who I can be. I haven't really sat down and reflected on that, but of course it had some sort of impact just because our past inevitably uh, mediates our, our present and our future. You know, it's cool that you say that because that was sort of my experience too. My first barber was a Korean lady named Miss Free. She was cool. (laughs) (laughs) Really a Korean lady in DC. In DC, but I, don't forget, I was a military kid, so this is all on the okay. base. All on so, the base. So, so you think about the military and military, the military space. It's very, it's a lot more diverse than people realize. It comes, it brings in so many different people from different cultures, mm-hmm. and so that was like my my first exposure in regards to the barbershop. And so there really wasn't much like overall commute, like environment dialogue. More so, Miss Free and, and her colleague, they would be speaking Korean back and forth. I picked up a few Korean words here and there, you know, that's how I learned, you know, started to learn different languages. But really my, my first exposure to sort of the, the, a, the atypical black barbershop was when my uncle introduced me, my dad, my brother to, to Mr. Marvin, who, who's known me since I was like eight years old. And I've been going to him back to when he was working from somebody up for somebody else and, you know, and everything like that. I remember the place felt like vomit. And eventually he got his own shop, which he now has two shops this very day. Mm. And so I've grown up with him. And so he's known me throughout my whole development, watching me develop from the little boy that he knew at eight years old to the the 28 year old man that he sees now and so Mm. on. And the conversations that that space that Marvin created, it allowed me to also see my dad in a different way as I was growing up. Because my dad is normally, when you first meet him, I'm sorry, 
Dr. Williams, when you first meet him, <laughs> he's a very, you could tell he's been in the military. He's really reserved, but he's always contemplative. He's always thinking. But in that space, I would see my dad with a kind of outgoing personality that I don't see as often. Mm. I didn't realize my dad talked a lot and I realized where I get it from. Mm. And I could see how he engages spaces in conversation mm-hmm. as they're talking about sports. I mean, you know, there was my dad's a diehard Steelers fan. So I was able to really just see my dad perform his blackness in, in a space because at home it was very different. But in the barbershop, I saw my dad be really be his authentic self. Mm. He felt really where that cover was lifted in a kind of way. And I'm guessing it's because when you think about as you go into, you know, as you become an adult, you have a lot more of the pressures of what it means to, to be, quote unquote, the man of the house or the head of the household and the kind of weight from a financial standpoint, the kind of weight from being a parent, especially to two young black boys who are coming into, into their, their form. And especially the fact that he put himself through his bachelor's, master's and doctor mm-hmm. degree, all while my brother and I were in elementary, middle and high school. So he carried that weight external to the barbershop, but when he was in the shop is when I could observe just my dad and his most authentic self um, interacting with other black men. Um, and then I go to at my own barber in Charlottesville, JJ, that was a whole different atmosphere. I love JJ. He's a hustler, you know, him and I would talk, you know, things like that, but it's a very, it was a very different atmosphere than Marvin's because they would talk about sports and Marvin's, JJ's, they're talking about basketball, but a whole lot of other stuff that's going on and, and things like that. You know, a lot more profanity than, than I normally, um, <laughs> that I was used to. Um, but it was like, as I looked at those, those two spaces in particular, my posture shifted. I was a lot more laid back in Marvin's because it was a lot more, I guess it's like family. But then when I go into JJ's, I put on a tougher posture because of the, the nature of the dialogue and conversations in the space that was cultivated there is that I had to be a little bit more stoic per se in my black masculinity. Um, that, that's sort of how I felt and how it shifted my performance as we're talking about space and we're talking about environments and the performance of identity. Yeah, I think uh, to your point about this whole sports thing, I mean, I think, right, there's sort of a, a general masculinity uh, that isn't as racialized, right? Well, you kind of got to know sports just to just kind of, just to navigate. I mean, this could be the difference between you getting a job or not, right? Like, do you know, did you watch that that LeBron game last night? Do you at least know the outcome? Um, and for me, I mean, I was never, a, I always like tennis more than, than any other sports, just because I think tennis is a lot more, you got to be a lot more ready for the point, you know, the, it's a lot more on edge the whole game, right? Because every little point matters. Basketball, it don't really matter until the fourth quarter. That's my opinion. Um, so, but I would always, just like you're saying, like, I would always know, like, I'm going to the barbershop or this particular space, I know where I'm interacting with men who value these particular things, or at least appear to value these particular things. Uh, I would, yeah, I, I at least know what score, who played the night before, or the, the highlights. So I'm like, I'm watching like CNN just to, just to get the highlights so I can a- be able to engage somewhat in a conversation around uh, what that game is, just to, to navigate the space. Absolutely. It's like you, you definitely have to do a little bit of homework before you go in the barbershop. Absolutely. Absolutely. After a big game. Yeah, I, I've been there before too. Like, did you see him? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of have to stumble through. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, that to be one yeah. time, like, stumbling through a large conversation about sports. That happened one time, and now I'm like, all right. Same, similar to you. What is Skip and Shannon talking about before I go in here? 
I know yeah. it's gonna come up. That's yeah. real. Yeah. No, that's real. Yo, that is, this was crazy. You know what I mean? That's I know, just, right? Wow, bro. And they like, yeah. And then everybody else talking. And I just sit back, like I don't give a fuck. Absolutely. All you need is one thing. Like just one, one thing. Damn, just throw in there. Like, cool. All right, I, I've done my part. I've done my part. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. UVA discussion sections definitely prepared me for those kind of moments. Because if you didn't do the reading, you find that one piece. You have to be the first person to speak to set the tone and just, <laughs> just sit back and observe. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely it. That's definitely it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Black Kings Connect Podcast. We hope that you took something away from this episode that will help you grow. We hope that you learned something new so that now you know. We hope that you found a voice that's been hidden within, and we encourage you to take this conversation further into your own circles so that we can all win. Give us a shout out on our social media platforms and let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn at BK Connect Podcast, or by simply typing in Black Kings Connect Podcast in the search bar. Make sure to turn on the notifications so you are always notified whenever we drop an episode. We will be dropping an episode every other week on Thursdays. We are cultivating this space as a place to connect, empower, and uplift, and we hope that you hear the crown and stay locked in with us for the next episode. Always know that if you stay royal, we'll stay loyal. Welcome to the BKC family. Until next time, on Black Kings Connect podcast. Peace.